Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. Let me invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of John. This morning we're going to be reading and then studying John 2, verses 13 through 22. So not quite the end of the chapter. So John writes here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, beginning in verse 13, that the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, "Uh, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, And they believed the Scripture and the Word that Jesus had spoken. Let's pray together. Lord, as always, we thank You for Your Word. We do believe that it is living and that it is active. And so we pray with all our hearts now that You would make it to live and act as You deem best for us within our own hearts and lives. We ask this for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. So back when uh, the NBA was still classic NBA, uh, there was a guy named Dikembe Mutombo. Anybody remember him? Dikembe? Yeah. He was a center who stood seven feet, four inches tall. And before all of the, uh, the, the taunting rules were a thing, He became famous not so much for blocking shots as for what he did right after he threw the ball back in your face, right? Do you remember this? Guys would drive the lane and he would reject their shot and then he would, what do you do? Wag his finger in their face as if to say, no, 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 not in here, not in my house, right? Not in my house. He communicated to all comers 
You can't just do whatever you want to do in the paint I set. I regulate. I enforce the rules of engagement. I am the judge. I am the jury here. I am the owner. This is my house. And in our text this morning, uh, we're faced with an encounter along these lines. Only it begs the question, who owns God's house? Well, Brian, it's, it's God's house. So I'm going to go with God. Right? Well, that's the thing. That's just the thing. In our text and in our cultural context, that's not so obvious to people. It seems symptomatic of the fall for us to assume ownership of God's house, to reinvent worship as we see fit, to seek control over God's fold, and even in His name, to sort of demote Scripture and to demote Christ to a merely supporting role. But what happens when neither Christ or Scripture will do that? What happens when in truth and grace they wag the finger in your face? Who owns the house of God? Who governs biblical worship? Who decides what's good and right and true to God and most edifying and enjoyable for you and me? Who has the right to say, not that, but this? Who has ultimate authority, we're asking, over the worshiping house of God. Let's come and see. First, that Jesus can cleanse this glorious temple of stones. Starting in verse 13. And what we need to see initially is that as we move along in a book of the Bible, we need to be careful not to leave things behind that can help us have a better sense of what's right in front of us. Case in point, we're not supposed to hear of Jesus being able to attend the Passover of the Jews without hearing John the Baptist's earlier testimony in John chapter 1, verse 29. If you don't know, Passover was a, a holy day, a holiday, where the Jewish nation remembered how God delivered them out of Egypt for Himself and how at the, the height of that deliverance they were spared the wrath of God by putting themselves under the blood of those sacrificial lambs. And the New Testament says Jesus is the substance of all of that. That was a shadow. He's the substance. He's the great Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He who comes to the temple in Jerusalem to participate in Passover is Himself the sacrifice to end all Sacrifices. The entire sacrificial system in the Old Testament was meant by God to illumine for us who Jesus is and what Jesus will do to once for all save us from our sins. And to that end, we're supposed to see some part here of what He had to be to be our Passover Lamb. And that is a perfectly obedient human being. A sinner cannot atone for sinners. One who needs atonement cannot be the one making atonement. Salvation, biblically speaking, salvation demands substitution. 
a righteous one in the place of the unrighteous. One without sin in the place of sinners, absorbing our sins, bearing our penalty, and then giving us grace in return. And here in our text, at the very beginning, is a glimpse of that one who as a Jewish man under the law, the law, let's remember that he gave Jesus knowing full well who he was, obediently made the trek to Jerusalem to observe what ultimately only shadowed him. And now, this becomes really the first credential for the authority that he's about to display in the temple. He's not only the spotless Lamb of God who takes away our sins, Jesus is also the spotless temple of God. Remember, again, we can't leave these things behind as we move along. Jesus is the Word who became flesh, there you go, and dwelt or tabernacled or templed among us. And so already, John has prepared us to see in Christ a momentous leap forward in the plan and progress of redemption. Jesus isn't just the actual substance of Passover. He's also the actual substance of the temple. Everything the temple was meant to be was meant to typify or shadow Jesus. Talk about passing the baton. Right? The true temple is not foremost and finally a place. It's a person. It's Christ in whom, as Paul will later say, the whole fullness of deity was pleased to dwell bodily. So, as he enters the world, this glorious temple of stones, like John the Baptist, is meant to bow out and give way to Jesus. And to come full circle, add to that His perfect purity. And He is uniquely able to see the various impurities that are taking place in this temple type. Jesus, the spotless temple, is uniquely able to see the human obscuring of true obedience and true worship in this temple of stones. And as he begins his public ministry, he's now primed to do something about it. And so here he is, he's gone up to Jerusalem and he enters into the temple. And he doesn't at all like what he finds. Oxen and sheep and pigeons and people converting money and buying and selling these animals, and doing so with a rational and religious excuse. What was it? Well, it's, that, it's that people are coming from far away to celebrate the Passover. And because they're coming from far away, they can't be expected to bring their offerings that far, these animals, and so let's just set up a mini-zoo 
in the temple and be of service to people. What's the excuse? The excuse is convenience. In the name of God, they turn God's house into a convenience store. We need to hear that convenience, religious convenience, unchecked, is so much the ruin of biblical conviction in worship. Clearly, the Lord of the temple does not approve of everything we think will be good in the name of service. Now, admittedly, Jesus sees the reality of these things better than we do, right? (laughs) Perfect clarity. But still, we have to note here his displeasure at what's happening. Pragmatism, right? Just doing what we do just because it works for us. That does not then square with God's word or the purity of his worship. That is apparently intolerable to Jesus. Do we have a place in our understanding of Jesus that allows for what we see in verses 15 through 16? We know, what does he say of himself in Matthew? I am gentle and lowly in heart. And John has already said in John chapter 1 that he is full of grace. (laughs) Full of grace and, and truth. And apparently what we see in these verses is grace and truth. He takes a whip of cords, he makes it, and takes it, and then drives all of this stuff out of the temple. He pours out the coins, and he turns over the tables, and he says to the pigeon sellers, take these things away. My father's house is not to be a house of trade. Now, we'll come back to that, but let's just resolve this. Number one, Jesus does not whip anybody. Okay, we're good there? He doesn't whip anybody. Two, animals, especially big ones, are hard to move without a whip. Number three, what he does is apparently so quote-unquote hostile that the Roman garrison that would have been overseeing this area of the temple does not at all respond to it. Meaning, whatever it was that he did, it's hardly considered riotous. What it was, really, was righteous indignation. Or, as one put it, the blazing anger of the selfless Christ. It was, to a far greater degree, what we should feel when God's glory is trampled upon and thereby souls are greatly endangered. It was, in the final analysis, an expression of what? Psalm 69, verse 9. Zeal for the glory of God. You see his disciples in verse 17? His disciples, they see what he does here in the temple, and they don't see anything at all wrong with it. What do they see in it? They see the fulfillment of what? Scripture. Zeal for your house will consume me. From all of that, questions abound. So we just want to drill down for a moment here. Jesus approaches the temple knowing that it has a divine 
purpose, a specific divine purpose. And having then entered it, he finds that purpose, which is the pure worship, pure biblical worship of God, he finds it polluted. He finds the love of money over the love of God. He finds fleshly convenience in the place of biblical conviction. He finds sacrifices on sale so that none of the heart variety need ever be made. He finds a great gathering of people in a holy city, in a holy place, having very little, if anything, to do with God, Scripture, or Gospel. He finds a whole lot of religion, but hardly any true worship. More colorfully, as D.A. Carson put it, quote, instead of solemn dignity and the murmur of prayer, remember what he says elsewhere about his father's house, my father's house is a house of prayer. Instead of the murmur of prayer, he hears the bellowing of cattle and the bleating of sheep. Instead of brokenness and contrition and holy adoration and petition, he only finds noisy commerce. And I think I agree with others that it's not so much that commerce is being done as it is where it's being done. And I don't just mean in the temple in general, but more specifically, again, if you read sort of the, the commentaries on this, more specifically, most likely, this was taking place in the court of the Gentiles. And if so, if there are a lot of really big animals and all in that court, let me just ask you a question, where are the Gentiles? Where are they? So low key here, underneath the surface of the text, it seems this custom did in effect make it harder for certain souls to come and approach and worship God. There was some kind of sinful, self-righteous partiality at play in the temple of God. But at any rate, in Jesus, the Lord of that house, who sees past perception into the fact of the matter, the heart of the matter, lets everybody know here that he disapproves. Not in my house. What they're doing isn't faithful to God. You say, how can we be so sure? Because God is in the house. And this all becomes quite searching for us, doesn't it? How do we gather for worship? Do we gather distractedly? Or do we gather preparedly and solemnly? And if we gather distractedly, what needs to change? So that we can come and gather and worship preparedly and solemnly. Or how much earthen anxiety do we bring into the heavenly assembly? Is it just our, our bodies that gather here while our hearts stay out there and they're just scattered all about the world thinking about what i got to do later on this afternoon and all this kind of stuff? More basically, why do we gather at all? Right? Is it to truly worship God and to do good to souls? 
let's just say that Jesus decided to show up. He walks through those doors right now. How would His presence alter us right now? Would it sober us? Would it straighten us? Would it break us? Would it awaken us? What would it do? Because here's the thing, you go read Revelation 2 and Revelation 3, Jesus is writing to the churches, and what does He tell them? He says, I am the one who walks amongst you. He is here. He is here. What would He reprove in us? What would He whip away? What would He direct us to get out of our lives? And how would we respond to that? That's going to be a big question moving forward in the text. How do we respond to that? Would any of us here say, Jesus, Jesus, listen, you need to just take a chill pill. You need to lighten up. You need to laugh a little. You need to tell us some stories and some funny jokes and stuff like this. You're way too serious about this worship stuff. As a church, we need to ask, are we just religious? Or are we righteous? Are we sleepy? Or are we zealous for the glory of God? Are we sacrificing conviction on the altar of convenience? Are we hindering any soul from being able to hear the truth of the gospel and then worship God in spirit and in that truth. In our ministry, are we only seeking yours, what you can give to us, or are we seeking you, your joy in the risen Christ? Knowing God's purpose in worship will greatly determine that we do actually worship. Clearly, Jesus has a preference. He really does have a preference for what is pure and concentrated and heartfelt and inviting and Godward and scriptural and centered, as it were, on His person. He is the Lord of true worship. Let's continue on. We see as we go ahead that that's not at all evident to the hearts of the religious leaders in Jerusalem. This scene, sign as it is, leaves them interestingly asking for a sign. And I say interesting because their asking shows they actually are fairly curious about Him. Okay, You see verse 18, they aren't just dismissive of Jesus. They see His actions here, and in those actions they perceive His supposed authority, and so they they ask Him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Now, we need to know that in asking for a sign, something is being exposed about their hearts, and that something isn't just that they are really, really curious, it's that they're unbelieving. His disciples see the contrast. 
His disciples see this episode and say, that is the Christ of Scripture. Psalm 69.9. The leading ministers in Jerusalem see it and say, show us a sign. (laughs) And again, if we know anything about the history of Israel, it's that seeing a sign hardly ever converted a soul. The issue of salvation is not about seeing the signpost miracles of Christ with our eyes, but about seeing the scriptural mercies and majesties of Christ in our hearts. But here, in asking for a sign, it only proves they have not that sight. They're blind. But again, they do perceive, they do perceive what Jesus' actions are are meaning to portray here. I, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph, have messianic authority over the worship of God in this place for this people. They do perceive that. The problem is they just go on to say, prove it. They don't take him at his word. Acting out scripture apparently is insufficient for them. And so Jesus has his authority over the house of God challenged. Same as it is today when specifically religious unbelievers stiffen their necks at his truth, at his exclusivity, at his sovereignty, at his right to tell them they've got God all wrong. And we often do the same when told we are not free to worship God any way we like. When for our joy and for our eternal good, Jesus puts us in our place and says, you need to get back to my word. May we not have the tendency then to challenge his authority to direct our way to God, to oversee true worship. Who do you think you are, Jesus? Who do you think you are? Do you think you're the Word? (laughs) Do Do you think that you are the Christ? Do you think that you are God or something? Yeah. Sorry, I'm going to need some some handwriting on the wall or something of that nature to believe you. Well, we know, don't we? That is already done a sign in Cana. We did that last week. Water into wine. And rightly discerned, we know what he's just done here is a prophetic sign about who he is. And you look ahead to verse 23 and we discover that during his stay in Jerusalem, apparently he did signs in bunches, in multiples. Jesus did Messianic signs. He just didn't entrust to them the full weight of his identity and ministry. So we're to note, he doesn't do anything here except foretell or prophesy, verse 19, the sign, capital S, of signs. And what is it? What does he say? Destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. 
man. And so here, he declares his authority. But what does he declare? And how does it confirm his authority over the house of God? You see, verse 20, they don't get it. They don't get it at all. What their material ears hear is to them something that is totally impossible. It's that, were that building, were that temple of stones destroyed, which was at that point in time 46 years in the making and not actually completed for another three decades or more, three days. And Jesus would have it up and running? Forget for a moment their spiritual deafness. Forget that they're now dismissing the authority of Him through whom, remember, all things were made. Jesus could tear it down and build it back in a, like that if He wanted to. Suppose Jesus was the Christ. Had these Old Testament scholars never learned or believed anything from the works of God in their past through lesser servants like Moses? Is there no benefit of the doubt that Jesus, who will do divine marvels in plain sight, could do this also? Next week we're going to see that Nicodemus actually does see something cool about Jesus. That's kind of like Moses. And then Jesus says, you don't know the half of it. Anyway, that's next week. And come back. But, we know, right? We know that that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about tearing down that temple and, and building it back up in three days. And we should realize how blessed we are in that knowledge and the faith in Jesus that follows from it. John helps us, doesn't he? Verse 21, you see there? What does he say? He was speaking about the temple of his body. So, let's understand this sign. Jesus knows Himself to be the temple of God. He is God incarnate in the flesh. He is the place where sinners come to meet with God, come to know God, come to be reconciled to God, come to worship God. As Jesus will later say in John chapter 14, I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And so every rendition of that old temple and all the sacrifices done in it to mediate a grace-made relationship with God, all of it was patterned ultimately after Christ. That's crazy. So, as one put it, Quote, in this temple, that is in Christ, the ultimate sacrifice is going to take place. And by it, something unsearchably marvelous is going to happen for us in the Jerusalem above. Even as upon his death, you remember this? The curtain of that temple was torn in two from top to bottom so Heaven itself was flung wide open with door jams. Right? How glorious. It's wild. 
to realize, as it says elsewhere, that the veil above was the flesh of Christ below. So that when His flesh was torn, when He was destroyed on the cross, after He had paid it all, that ironclad veil that kept us out from God in heaven actually was made into a highway into the presence of God. Amazing. It's the first time in the gospel that Jesus discloses his knowledge about the cross. And what's more is that in a way his words even sort of set the cross in motion here, don't they? Destroy this temple. He doesn't say if you destroy this temple. Destroy this temple is an imperative. It's a command. Destroy this temple. It's called a prophetic provocation. He knows the end from the beginning and He knows how to get to the end from the beginning and we ought to love Him all the more then that He actually knowing it goes that way. That said, the sign isn't merely the cross, is it? Remember, He's establishing His authority over the house of God and it is hard to see how that is done if He's but crucified and dead. So the sign is not merely the cross. The sign that establishes his identity, his ministry, and his authority is the fact of his self-resurrection. Why that? Because that vindicates Jesus as no one less than the Lord himself. I am. God's house. And what is His is therefore also mine. In effect, this is my house, guys. This is my house. And I have all authority then to say what goes. And eventually, in the resurrection, everything's going to (laughs) go. Everything's going to go. What do I mean? I mean that while the new temple in our text is certainly the physical body of Jesus, again, we should know more is meant. You and I, we, this body of Christ, this local assembly is part of the risen body of Christ. Right? God's goal, beloved, was always more than a physical house made of mud and stone. It was always a spiritual house made of living stones indwelled by the Holy Spirit founded upon Christ who is the chief corner stone. People are so much like David at first, aren't they? You remember David? He says, uh, oh God, I'm going to build a great house for you. (laughs) And what does God say to David? He says, no David, I... I'm going to build an everlasting house for you. Remember? And by the grace of Jesus, we are some part of that spiritual house, that family of God. And as such, our text finds another kind of application, doesn't it? 
what would Jesus clean up? Not just in our gathering, but in our hearts and in our lives. Are you, are we, are our bodies not now called the temple of the living God? Straight up, how would Jesus kindly whip us into shape? What does he find to put in order in you? What in us is little reflective of God in the world and little reflective of God to one another? How might we discover in any obscuring thing in us that would keep people from seeing God in truth? And what ought we to to do with that once it's discovered? Do we know what we are as the temple of the risen Jesus? And what about our purpose as such? Are we living sacrifices? Are we living invitations to God? Come and meet with Him. Is it our living mission to help souls meet with God, know God, be reconciled to God, worship God through Jesus Christ, crucified and raised? And as we are doing that, is the heavenly version of God's house driving us onward? Remember what Jesus says in John 14? There are Many rooms in my Father's house. Many rooms in my Father's house. Is that a living hope for us as we live for Him? It seems it will need to be because rival families don't seem to much appreciate this family as we go about doing our Father's business. Don't get me wrong, there is no better business to be about in the universe. Just saying zeal for this house isn't always easy on body and soul. So, good news, our Lord Jesus is able to raise the dead. Hmm. Something maybe underappreciated here is John's inability to hold back the fact of Christ's resurrection for dramatic effect. As someone who likes to think of himself as a preacher, I tend to like to do this. John doesn't. See, he's laid it all on the line in his resurrection. But, but, will he be raised? You know, this kind of thing. You'll have to wait and see. No. John just says, come and see. Like, immediately. Can't hold it back. We're in John 2. We're not in John 20, 21. (laughs) We're in John 2. There's no need for drama because there is no drama about it. When, therefore, not if, he was, not was not, raised from, not held by, the dead, not unconsciousness or the like. Friends, John's apostolic testimony, some 50 years after the original events, and after all the rest of his brother apostles have been martyred for Jesus, the testimony of this eyewitness is still this. Jesus is raised from the dead. And in fact, their enduring witness to it, including this one, is evidence itself that our Lord does. That He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That He's the way, the way, the only one there is, back into 
the presence of God. That He is here, the Lord of the house. He's the rock of it. He's the life of it. He's the sovereign of it. He's the builder of it. Do you see this in the rest of verse 22? When He was raised, and because of it, because He was raised, His disciples recalled, He said this, and they believed what? The Scripture is what it says. They believe the Scripture and the Word that Jesus had spoken to them. His resurrection not only vindicated Him, it provided conviction for them. And do you, I just want you to know what's incredible here. Many of you, looking out there right now, are way too young to probably remember Ace of Base. Okay? <laughs> but, like the old Ace of Base song, you ever heard I saw the sign. No? And it opened up my eyes, I saw. No, okay. So they saw the sign and it opened up their eyes. But to do what? To go back and have their faith better rooted and strengthened in Scripture. And why? Would they do that when they just seen the crucified Jesus raised? Who cares about Scripture as old stuff? We've seen it. Who cares about Scripture when you've seen? Probably the one who knew we would not all see. Probably the one who knows our propensity to doubt. Probably the one who wants us then to know that the Bible is the very Word of God. Revealing the plan of God. And that nothing, not even seeing Him raised from the dead, is more sufficient and sure for creating and strengthening faith in the Gospel than Scripture. Probably the Word made flesh. Scripture testifies to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that, in and of itself, is more than enough for our conviction about it and all that it means. God is so kind to us here in normalizing the fountain of a true and convictional faith. It is no more to have seen Jesus early Easter morning than to have studied Him together in this text this morning. That's crazy. We've seen Him in the Word of God. So, let the Word of God have its way with us. Let it strengthen your faith in the truth that Jesus is raised from the dead. Unbelieving friend, if you would ever meet God, really know God, be reconciled to God, rejoice in God, both now and forevermore, you must turn from your sins and entrust your soul to this crucified and risen Jesus. He is the only one who can put away your sins once for all time and just as eternally bring you into the Father's house. So, I pray that you'll do that right now. And if you do, please don't, don't hesitate to come and speak with me or 
Some others here. Jenny over here, raise your hand. Come talk to Jenny. Other people too. Beloved, uh, John 2 introduces the increasingly public ministry of Jesus to give proper perspective for the rest of the gospel. It's about new wine and a new temple. He's the host of the great marriage between God and sinners. And he's the very place in which that marriage occurs. And so the call this morning for us is just this, is to take care that we go with Jesus, hand in hand and heart in heart. It's to prefer his head nod to his finger wag. As the house that has been cleansed by Christ is to labor in love, to be a house that is pleasing to him. If we would be God's house, on our way to God's house, it's imperative we learn to love, to heed the Lamb who's taken away our sins, who is, at the end of the day, the Lord of all. Let's pray together. We thank you for your word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son. We thank you for your grace to us in disclosing Him to us, for revealing His heart His authority, His power, His truth, His grace. May the full weight of your text land upon our hearts this moment. Oh, make us a people who love the Lamb and love to follow Him wherever He goes. Please continue the good work you're doing of rooting this church in your word. For Jesus' sake and for our joy in Him, we pray. Amen.